This is season two of the Do More Good podcast. You need to kind of just go fast and seize those opportunities. We have no access to any kind of finance whatsoever, but I am drowning in brown <laughs> If your people aren't lined up behind why the change they're trying to make is important, nothing happens. What's the difference between work and home life? It doesn't mean you have to be on 24-7, but you have to be receptive to inspiration. Hi, I'm James, and today we're talking plastics. You don't need me to tell you what an issue it's becoming. Besides, we have three great guests coming up to tell you about how they're reducing their impact. We've got Hubbub describing their award-winning campaign, and the Royal Parks on the steps they took at their half marathon this year. Researching for this episode was pretty terrifying. I still can't tell you the difference between polypropylene and polystyrene, but I can tell you that at last count we were producing about 450 million tonnes of the stuff annually. Some of it is put to good use. Some of it is used in those plastic pint glasses that everyone hates. Around a third of it is in packaging, which is typically useful for six months. But current estimates on its lifetime vary between 450 years and forever. That plastic bag will likely still exist when Kenneth's shirts are in fashion. One way or another, that's going to have an impact on the causes you work for or that you care about. Let's see what these guys have to say. Good morning. Can I grab a flat white and a cappuccino, please? Thank you. We're going up in the world. This morning we are down at Somerset House for a coffee to talk all about cups, or more accurately, what we do with them when the coffee is gone. I'm very lucky to be joined by Truant, the CEO and founder of Hubbub, an environmental charity based here on the Strand, who recently won a third sector award for their Square Mile marketing campaign. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much. First up, before we start celebrating your success, can we talk about a little bit about the problems which Hubbub was set up to challenge and how you've grown? Yeah, sure. So Hubbub was set up four years ago as a sort of belated midlife crisis by myself. And it was set up with the objective of taking environmental messages to a mainstream audience. So I was increasingly concerned about what the science was saying around things like climate change. And when I looked around, I felt that the public was not, not really engaged or slightly apathetic to the issue or actually openly hostile. So the question we asked ourselves was, how can we take environmental messages out in a totally different way? So we don't talk about the environment. We talk about things that we think people are interested in, which for us is their homes, the food they eat, the clothes they wear, and their neighbourhoods. We decided to collaborate with business because a small charity can't do this on its own. We decided to take a totally fresh and different approach to measure what we do and then to share everything good and bad so that people can learn from the mistakes and hopefully copy the best bits. So basically open source it. And finally, we decided we didn't care if nobody had heard of Hubbub that actually the activity or the actions were way more important than the charity. So we just want to inspire change. Yeah. In doing my research for this, I've become addicted to your vlogs. I mean, podcasts are so over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've become addicted to your vlogs. They're really nicely done. You're, to- you're not telling people what to do. It's a really fun, engaging way of doing it. And I'd encourage any one of our listeners to turn this off right now and, and to go and listen to that. But one of your... Most successful campaigns to date, perhaps, is the Square Mile Challenge. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that to start with? So the Square Mile Challenge is about coffee cups. We get through 2.5 billion coffee cups a year in the UK, and less than 1% of those were recycled. And the reason is, if you look closely at a coffee cup, although it looks like it's paper, it actually has a plastic 
liner and that plastic liner is melded onto the paper which makes it incredibly difficult to recycle. So we were sending them all over to China and the Chinese were very kindly recycling them for us. The Chinese then decided they didn't want foreign trash and no longer took them. So basically they were being recycled by the Chinese, then they stopped. So the public thought they were being recycled but they actually weren't. So the coffee cup companies knew that this was a problem in the making and then Hugh Fernie Whittingstall, the chef, got a bus and put coffee cups on the side of it and drove it through London with a loud speaker shouting out for his TV programme that they weren't being recycled and then that basically sparked an entire conversation, Daily Mail campaigns. But what we'd been doing sort of behind the scenes on that was starting to explore what could happen to the coffee cups. So we started in Manchester, in one street in Manchester, Oxford Street, and we put one bin, big coffee cup bin, on the street and watched what happened. The first thing we discovered was that people love McDonald's coffee because they were basically breaking into the bin to steal the coupons from McDonald's cups so that they could get cheap coffee. So uh, it was locked down like Fort Knox. Uh, We found that people were more likely to recycle if the bin was yellow than white. And we had a little game on the top because we were trying to gamify it. Yeah, we found that kids liked swinging on it, and that was no good. So we basically refined the bin quite a lot. We ended up putting more and more in the street and into places locally, and we managed to recycle 30,000 cups in one street, and that was backed by McDonald's and Costa. We then thought, well, we've learnt loads. Let's take it to the heart of London. So we managed to expand the number of businesses. So we got most of the uh, high street retailers to invest in the campaign, And we went into the square mile of London and we've recycled well over six million cups already from the heart of London. That's amazing. And yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go and have a little look at this because what you did, there's so much to unpack there, but the gamification side of things that you did was brilliant because it engaged the community and made it fun. So the whole charity is based around behaviour change. So there's a big difference between awareness raising and actually getting people to change behaviour. So we always look at what the sort of sound academic principles are behind behaviour change campaigns. So you've got things like nudge, fun theory, visualisation, social norms. We know there are techniques you can use to get people to actually do stuff and we basically bring those into all the campaigns we do. So rather than shock tactics or encouraging people, you, you use those kind of tactics to, to do that instead? Yeah, we were looking to cut on a different subject, cigarette littering. And we did some research. We always do research first. And we found it was like drunk young blokes, basically, dropping cigarettes on the floor as they came out of the pubs. So the question was, how do you stop a drunk bloke dropping a cigarette on the floor? And we thought, well, a little sticker's not really going to do it. So we talked to young people, particularly young men, and obviously they're interested in sport. So we created a voting bin. And the first question we asked was, who's the best footballer in the world? Is it Ronaldo or is it Messi? We stacked the bin. So it looked like Ronaldo was winning. And at the time... (laughs) Messi was clearly the best footballer in the world. Lad Bible took a photo of it. We got 76,000 Facebook likes in a day. And then I started to get inquiries from all over the world saying, can we buy the bin, which is slightly problematic because I had one. So what we've done with that is we've manufactured the bin. We do it in some set house here, just, just in the basement below us. We've got a company who makes the bins. We set up a social enterprise owned by the charity we sold about 1,400 bins now around the world, and the money comes back into the charity, and everywhere they've gone, they've reduced cigarette littering by at least a third. People can change the questions, so we've had lots of questions, obviously, about Brexit, but we've had, is Donald Trump's hair real? Um, uh, what band would you like to see next uh, at the venue? There's lots and lots of different questions. 
Yeah, we're definitely buying one of those and we're going to play with Kenneth Stressence on that one. <laughs> um, but you've gone, there's, uh, you talk a lot about some big numbers there. So with, just to drag you back to the, the square mile, you talk six, did you say six million yeah. cups now? When you first started out, what did success look like? What did you want it to achieve? Did you have numbers in mind? No, no, we, it was an experiment. So we'd learned in Manchester. So the idea is obviously always to take everything to scale. So what we wanted to do was, would it work on a bigger city? We added a whole load of more communications in. Yeah, we did a lot of on-street research to see what was happening. Were people recycling bins? Which, where were the locations that worked? How could we get more business involved? And I think for us, it's been a, it's been a really interesting evolution. So when we started, none of the recycling mills in the UK would take paper cups. Now three of the recycling mills will take paper cups because they know there's a market for them. So we can technically recycle all the cups and is that, that just create. because the process is too expensive? They didn't want to do it, to be totally honest, because it is slightly problematic for them, and it's outside their normal process. But now they've said, okay, well, we can see there is a market for this. They're confident there's a market. So they've changed their process. Costa have said, promised that they'll provide £70 per tonne for every cup collected, so for any cup. So that means that the economics of coffee cup recycling are now valid in the UK. And then with Starbucks, we ran a, a trial in 36 of their stores to try and promote reusable cups. So most of the coffee cup companies will provide you with a 25p discount. Um, and what they found was that that shifted 2% of customers. Then what we did in the 36 stores is we had a charge, a tax, a 5p tax, which Starbucks gave to us. And that moved the numbers from 2% to 8%. So basically, people were more reactive to a 5p tax than they were to... They still get the 25p There's discount. fascinating stuff that you yeah. can learn about this. Yeah. But human, as you, you were saying earlier about human behaviour. Yeah. So what, what's incredible is now that Starbucks, they charge on across their 930 stores. They've now introduced that, that charge, and the charge comes back to us to run more single-use campaigns. So for us as a charity, you know, we're promoting reusables... Uh, we're using a financial incentive to do that. And then the money that that creates is then invested into more campaigns yeah. to cut single-use plastics. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love it. You said that Manchester went really well, and then you decided to roll it out in, in London. Were you, did you have much time to prepare that? How, how much time went into preparing that? It took about six months from let's do this to sort of the launch. And the reason it took so long is I think we had... 14 funding partners so we asked each funding partner to put in £10,000 each but it's not just the funding partners you then have to get the corporation and city of London behind it because you need permission to put stuff in the streets we got 35 of the biggest employers in London in that area to agree to put recycling facilities in we had to get network rails approval Uh, we had to get the recycling industry behind it so it's it's a sort of very complicated jigsaw puzzle. And then the hardest bit was we had to persuade Costa, Starbucks, Pret, Nero to go behind one piece of branding. They're very averse to putting anything that's non-branded into their outlets, but they agreed on this. So basically, they all had the same messaging and they all agreed that they would take anybody's coffee cup. So anywhere in London, I think we had about 140 recycling points in the square mile so it was really easy for people to do it and it didn't matter what brand of cup they had they knew they could go anywhere and put it recycle it yeah 
Nice. And as with any project, it's that juggling between to keep yeah. it moving. Yeah. And you can't get one side without the other. No. It's a tricky to do. But yeah. Well done. Yeah. yeah. And the branding side of things. That is, there are people that are going to be ringing you <laughs> to see how you <laughs> achieve that. Well, I think... I mean, I think the whole debate around plastics and has, has obviously hit the mainstream. And companies can't do it on their own. So they, they all know they've got a sort of a burning platform issue and they know they can only do that through collaboration. And I think the amazing role that charities can play is to act as facilitators uh, of the process because we come at it with an ambition to do environmentally for us the right thing. So we haven't got a commercial interest. So we, we, we can bring people together in a very different way. And then also what they love about us is that we can sort of do things that they'd quite like to do, but their brand guidelines don't quite exist. So for the launch of the Square Mile Challenge, we built a model of the City of London made of paper cups and took it around all the high footfall areas in the sort of heart of London. We had a, a choir at uh, Liverpool Street Station singing coffee cup-related songs to promote the use of recycling facilities. So all of those things get social media traction and gets the public engaged. Yeah, and, and why the square mile? Is that based on research? Uh, no, nicely? no, or? it was, yeah, felt good. It's, we knew it was like the area of highest use of cups mm. and we knew that the City of London would be potentially up for it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Talking City of London, you must have needed to sign off on reams of paper in just in permissions to get to do this. <laughs> I'm not sure we did. I, th- I think what's what's amazing easier to get forgiveness than permission in some cases. I think so. Yeah. I mean, uh, what constantly astonishes me is so we just launched a campaign in Leeds, and I've just come back from Leeds. You know, and Leeds City Council have allowed us to scatter bright yellow recycling bins all across the city, and and sometimes I just get amazed. It's like, wow, you've allowed us to do this. Um, you know, we're a tiny charity, and yet we're allowed to do it and I, I yeah does it take one person within the organization to to buy into your vision and the, for them to push it through internally to have somebody on the inside that does that that, that really really helps yeah. yeah but you know if anybody's worked with councils they know they're a sort of double-headed beast which mm. is you need the politicians and you need the officers as well so you know you can get buy-in from an officer but the politicians if the politicians aren't behind it then you're not going to get anywhere. So you need both. Okay. And what were your backers looking for in return? Did they just believe in the cause and they, and they wanted to see it happen? Or On the Square Mile Challenge, they wanted to prove to the public that coffee cups can be recycled and they can now be recycled. They couldn't be, but they can now be. They wanted to learn about what was the most cost-effective way for them to do it. They needed to show the sceptical, questioning public that they were acting together on it. And that's, that's why they got behind it. Okay, brilliant. It went on to win awards, as we mentioned. Any other... Well, we'll, let's talk about that in a second. But what, any other results that you saw from anything that you weren't expecting? That the media coverage you got was, was impressive? Yeah. It was a funny, funny campaign. We got so much media, it was ridiculous. And I think what surprised us is, is that we kept... So when we announced we were going to do it, we got media coverage. And then when we did it, we got media coverage. And then we got the results, we got the media coverage. So, Did that put extra pressure on you? No. I mean, I think... You were always going to do it. We so. were going to do it. And I, th- I think... 
I mean, we don't care if we fail. I mean, to be totally frank, if, if we fail, we'll have learned something in the failure and we should tell people about it. So I think the whole ethos of the charity is just to experiment. We've never gone with any of our corporate partners and promised them a definite outcome. What we've done is we'll promise we'll try something and we'll measure it properly. So, so it, didn't re- it didn't really matter if it failed for us. So, no, it didn't build any pressure. Obviously, you always have troublesome journalists who you, know, you expect will be looking for an angle. But if they're going to kick anybody, they're going to kick the companies rather than the charity that's trying to do the right thing. Presumably that came up in conversations with the, uh, the coffee companies. How did, you, how did you keep them calm about it, or did you not? So I'm going to shamelessly plug the PR agency we worked with through a company called Barley, who are absolutely astonishing. And what we did, so the whole thing was co-created. So we had the most unwieldy conference calls, you know, with all the backers and Barley, just talking through what the communication strategy is, to make sure we had all the frequently asked questions dealt with, to have sort of spokespeople ready for, to handle everything. So... So gradually, they, they all came behind it. I mean, so part of the problem was some of the companies were quite keen to go early and sort of trying to get their bit of branding. So that, that was a bit like herding cats at time. I, and you mentioned this just before we started recording, but once you get a couple on board, then actually it becomes more embarrassing for them not to be part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very funny. I won't name names, but we, we've definitely seen a hierarchy of those who go first and those who come right at the last minute because they really can't get out of it. But yeah, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then media coverage is great. What did you do to promote it? So obviously we had our PR. So we have a PR agency on a retainer, which is quite unusual for a small charity. We have our vlogging channel. I knew nothing about blog, vlogging two years ago. But I sat with a bottle of wine one night and read about (laughs) vlogging and realized that more and more people were getting content that way. And I put in a a social venture application to CAF Venturesome saying give us 100k to set up a vlogging channel. They did because they didn't know anything about vlogging either. And so we use that. So we get huge reach on those videos. And then we do street installations, the choir. We bash social media really heavily i think we've got about twenty-four thousand twitter followers in three years got obviously it's almost Instagram. as many as kenneth and then how did third sector find out about it i think we we entered it so we it's it's as a new charity it's really important to try and gain credibility and 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 recognition so so we've entered lots of... I think we've won 14 awards in all in, in three years. So we do enter awards. And third sector... The charity sector has been really slow to embrace sustainability. You know, if you look at the corporate sector on things like plastics, uh, carbon, you know, they're so far ahead of the charity sector. And that's mainly where we play. About 90% of our income is from corporates. But we think the charity sector should step up. So we wanted to enter the third sector award just to show that there are charities operating in this space in a way that's slightly different and hopefully to spark some conversations in in that sector. Yeah, it's a really good point. And every conversation I've had with people within the charity sector about this episode and prepping for it, everyone's been behind it. It's just... We're not, we're not acting upon that for some reason. No. I think we, we're under pressure around return on investment and making sure we keep overheads low. But at the same time, there's a, there's a moral obligation to play our part for the future. 
Well, I mean, I obviously think that, but, you know, we had an IPCC report came out on Monday setting out if we don't keep sort of global temperatures down below 1.5, the implications. And actually the implications hit people in poverty, has implications for biodiversity, has implications for society, immigration, refugees. You know, these are issues which are all at the heart of most charities. And yet, sorry to be controversial, but I just don't think the charity sector engages with it. And when I look at charities who have fundraising activities which are carbon-intensive, and yet their objective is to help people who are going to be most adversely hit by climate change, I just think it's irrational um, and and needs to change. It's an an excellent point that has been coming up in conversations this past couple of weeks. Right. And not that me having conversations with people is going to change it, but it's there and and people are aware of it and they need to start acting upon it. Totally agree. Yeah. So, with other charities, what are the sort of things that, that they should first consider when creating and running campaigns like this? If they want to win that third, that you know, coveted <laughs> third sector award, are there things that you would so advise I, them to do? Just well, go and do it? Yeah, I, th- I think don't be afraid to exper- experiment. Be honest about what your ambitions are. And I, th- I think charities... I mean, obviously, the charity sector is under a lot of scrutiny with Oxfam, Kids Company and stuff. So I think they're quite cautious in many ways, which is weird because when you talk to charity people, they always say they're not. But I think they are quite risk-averse. And, and so I would say go out there, have a strong ambition, be ahead of the curve rather than slightly behind it, go and collaborate with business. As you said earlier, don't be afraid to fail. If yeah. it doesn't work... Yeah. You learn from it. Exactly. And how does it feel to win that award? That must have been nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's like, oh, God, we need somewhere else to put it on the, in the office. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got so many. You have to have a bigger <laughs> office. have got a tiny office. <laughs> so it's, it's always, I think it's, I mean, it's brilliant for the corporate partners because they feel good about it. It's even better for our staff who slog their guts out to, to get it. Mm-hmm. And it just gives us more ammunition to do more stuff. Yes, and so I think that's that's the important thing. Yeah. So you can then take that to Leeds and say, "This is what we did in London. This is the results. These are the results that we saw, and these are the awards that we won for it." Yeah. So presumably that opens doors and yeah, gains trust. Yeah. Very few people have heard of us. When you go to a big city and say we, we're going to come and play some games in your city, they obviously get immediately suspicious. So if you, any track record you have, and for us the track record is the awards, the results, but then also. Well, in Leeds now, 23 big companies saying, yes, we, we believe in this. Yeah. That gives you the permission to go and do things. And what can people do around, let's talk just about coffee. What would you encourage the general public that are listening to this to do themselves? There's a very old, simple environmental mantra about reduce, reuse, recycle. That's the level of activity. So for individuals and indeed charities, the first thing is reduction. I'm sure any any organisation will look around and they will be buying or using single-use plastic they don't need. Then there's definitely the reuse. So for cups, a reusable cup will save you money. And then recycling. Again, you know, most large businesses have now excellent in-house recycling facilities. I'm not sure most charities would. Yeah. We're constantly advising businesses on the simple steps they can take and then how do they communicate it, how do they get overcome the confusion that people have on this issue so yeah i mean charities can obviously seek advice yeah we need to step up and if people do want to get in touch and speak to you guys about the excellent work you're doing do they get in touch 
Twitter? Yeah, they can do that. I mean, we've got the hello at hubbub email address, which is always a revelation when we open it. Uh, <laughs> we're big in Japan at the moment. So, yeah, people in... And, and on the website, so every time we do a campaign, we have an impact report and an inspiration guide. So people can see what worked and didn't work, and the inspiration guide is, well, if I want to copy it, how do I copy it? Okay, brilliant. One final question for you, then. Messi or Ronaldo? Oh, clearly Messi. <laughs> Great stuff. <laughs> thank you very much. Brilliant. In Leeds. Cheers, thank you. Well, what would you like? Um, Sorry. I'm going to go for a cappuccino. Flat white and another cappuccino, please. So, second coffee of the day, and I'm up in the Serpentine Bar and Restaurant looking out over the water, and I'm joined by Persephone and Kristen from the Royal Parks. Hi. Hi. Morning. Hi there. Good to see you. The Royal Parks Half, as you may know, is one of the big events in the calendar. It has just happened. We had... Over 550 charities taking part, 16,000 runners. I think you mentioned 60,000 spectators on the course on the day and, very importantly, £4.5 million raised. One of the key things that has changed this year for the Royal Parks, now they have always had a sustainability ethos as part of what they offer, but they've really stepped it up this year. So I've come to talk to these two about how that came about and how it worked. Do you want to start by saying what prompted this approach? What, why did you step it up this year? Well, the Royal Parks does have a sustainability agenda around producing and hosting events here in these amazing green spaces. And for myself and my team, we wanted to look at what we could do to play a part in ensuring that the Royal Parks Half Marathon was basically upping its eco-credentials there would have been a lot in the press obviously about plastic straws and we already have a rule in the parks that we don't have plastic straws in our concessions but with running events as we all know there is quite a lot of plastic that is produced around the consumption of water on the course. Okay and Persephone you mentioned that you came into the organisation or stepped up into the race director role in March. In May, actually, in May, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, project, <coughs> project lead. So we put this event on with our sports delivery partner, Limelight Sports. And, yes, so I've basically been pretty new in post. Yeah, but an incredible job to have done that in, in so few months. Yes. I mean, obviously, the issue around plastic is something that I'm very interested in. And, obviously, thanks to Sir David Attenborough, he's very much brought it into the kind of public domain. Yeah. I just looked at what we were doing, which was already fantastic, but there is always still more that we could be doing. So in consultation with Limelight and the rest of the members of the team, we decided to put a plan in place about how we could reduce the plastic. Okay. And Kristen, it was your job to then get that out to maybe stakeholders, but certainly runners on the day and communicate that with them. Absolutely. So that was one of the things that was really important for this to work for us as a race. You know, ultimately... A lot of people here in the UK who are participating in these types of mass participation events kind of expect a certain experience on the course, and we wanted to make sure that people were arriving on race day and knew what we were doing and knew why we were doing it. So um, sharing with them over and over again 
the amount of plastic that we were able to reduce and pull off from the course through these changes and you know why that mattered yeah okay and so what did you what did you implement you were talking some impressive numbers off air so basically we looked at obviously the provision of water and for a start we reduced on the course the size of the plastic bottles that we had so we reduced that from 330 mils to 250 mils presumably you have a supplier for that do you go to them and say we want to reduce the size of this and either you comply with that or we look well elsewhere? we're fortunate that obviously we do work with various different suppliers and and actually they're not so common but they do exist 250 mil bottle of water with a sports cap so automatically we're making a saving by reducing the size of the bottle and reducing the wastage of the water as well i mean you know water is a valuable commodity we shouldn't just be spilling it then we decided to sort of drill down more into the detail of things we looked at overseas we looked at what other races were doing we decided to take the step of having two of our water points supplying water to our runners in biodegradable paper cups so that that meant by making that step that we were further reducing our use of plastic and you talked about numbers of bottles as well Yeah, so ultimately through these reductions, we reduced 100,000 plastic bottles from the Corson Festival site. And we've made a commitment by 2020 to go plastic bottle free throughout the entire course. And you asked charities to, to join you on that front? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, charities are our biggest stakeholder. It's really important for them to be bought into this commitment. So um, we work with four charities that are considered our golden oaks. They're our largest charities. And we ask them to consider plastic bottle waste. Highly recommended that they find alternatives, encourage their runners to bring their own uh, water bottles. We had water points on the festival site so folks could refill their water bottles that way. And we'll continue to push this with charities in future years, you know, asking them to work with us. Yeah, if you want to go plastic bottle free by, was it plastic free or plastic bottle free by, by 2020? Plastic bottle free by 2020. But certainly we want to look at all aspects of the race and, you know, figure out where we can make more reductions. What problems did you face in trying to implement these changes? So one of the other things that we did to get to that metric of reducing to 100,000 bottles, we also took the decision not to have a bottle of isotonic on the course as well. Sports nutrition is mission critical when you're getting into marathons, but for half marathons, it isn't so much. So we encourage people that if you're already training with sports nutrition, you know, please bring that with you. But as a race, we've made the decision not to provide that on the course because in previous years when we have had it, unfortunately, there's been an awful lot of wastage, both both in terms of the liquid and the fact that the bottle itself wasn't 100% recyclable. You absolutely see that, don't you? you, you um, if you're at any point on a course near a water station, you see the runners coming through, taking a couple of sips. No one stops and finishes the whole bottle, do they? And then immediately throws that on the on the floor. Yeah, so it, with with the isotonic, it basically meant that we were in a situation where there was a lot of wastage in terms of the liquid, as I've already said. But one of the key factors was that the particular plastic bottle wasn't 100% recyclable. So then it contaminated our recycling. Yeah. So for us, we made the decision to remove it. Did you face any, did you see any opposition to this? We were anticipating to, obviously, you know, there are many people out there who are take their running very seriously. And we were expecting to get some sort of 
repercussions perhaps on social media but I think thanks to Kristen you know we handled the communication plan so well that there were no surprises people were very well briefed as to what we were doing and in fact we found the reverse we found that people were very supportive of the measures that we were putting in place yeah and how about um, suppliers as well or or other kind of key stakeholders were they bought into this I mean certainly it we were saying just before this it's firmly on the agenda at the moment. There were stories in the, the Metro newspaper um, uh, just the other day, as you say, to David Attenborough's all over this. Everyone is aware of it. And the conversations that I've had with people about this episode, everybody understands it's a problem and we need to start fixing it now. Absolutely. That's one of the things that's so great about working in an event like this. All of our stakeholders, our sponsors, they were extremely committed to this commitment that we were making and and wanted to help us further it. For example, our headline sponsor, Royal Bank of Canada, when we shared with them our goals on reducing plastic, one of the other things we were looking at is we offer a goodie bag at the end of the race. And they offered to produce a canvas goodie bag for all 16,000 of our runners just you know, immediately in that first conversation we had with them. So there's so much potential and opportunity. And I think sponsors are excited to get involved in, with stuff like this. Well, so. I guess, actually, it makes sense for the sponsor as well, doesn't it? To be aligning with an event that has such great credentials makes them look good as well, right? Yeah, so it absolutely. makes commercial sense as much as it does kind of, I don't know, moral sense as well. Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, you were talking earlier on about paper cups. One of the issues with paper cups, particularly for hot drinks, is that they have a plastic coating in the inside. And so we actually got in touch with a company called Uhu that provide water in seaweed pouches. So we did two things. Firstly, we trialed them at a plogging event with a small, discreet group of runners. And we had amazing feedback from that. And so as a result, we then had Uhu have an activation in our festival site where, again, people could come and sample this fully biodegradable package. It's, in fact, edible. So it's a seaweed pouch that's actually quite robust that contains the water. And, again, we had amazing feedback from that. 99% of the people that were interviewed thought it was a fantastic innovation. I want to try this. I want to get my hands on one. How did it go on the day? So you put all of this in place, crossed your fingers that you weren't going to get bad feedback and then certainly from where I was standing it all went very smoothly I think this is sort of testament to our sort of communications people were very prepped they knew that if they wanted sports nutrition please do bring it if it is that you are going to have a preference to grab a bottle of water yes they will be on the course but they are going to be smaller and we also actively encourage people to if you've got a camel back or something that attaches to your waistband then again please bring that i mean one of the key things that we're about is we want to be on the reduction end of the metric not on the recycle end of the metric and certainly as i said i was talking to people about this episode and One of the key things that comes through is that people are really behind this. Nobody is going to disagree. They just need a bit of guidance. So maybe doing that and saying, you know, we're not going to have plastic bottles on the course and helping them out on that front. Actually, they're more than happy to go along. They just need pointing in the right direction. Well, and I'll say too, I think one of our goals when we decided to make these changes and we wanted to communicate it to our runners was really to encourage them to take ownership of the experience in the sense of we gave guidelines, information for the sports nutrition, what they could bring on the course that might be helpful if they were interested in that, how to drink out of a cup of water and continue to keep moving on the course. But we also just 
really asked people to do what worked for them. And I think that's part of the reason why we did have such a positive response of people really felt like they were doing their part. And if you can encourage people to join you in the reduction side of that cycle, then that removes the problems around the costs of recycling, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, do, we have very good recycling in the parks anyway. It's a matter of course. And, for example, with the race itself and when people are arriving and getting ready to run their race and perhaps they've got an old sweatshirt that they then discard, all of that gets swept up and we recycle it through trade. We're really keen to be on the reduction end and get that messaging across to the participants. I think in the main, everybody is really behind what we're trying to do. Essentially, we've all seen in the papers the devastating effects of plastic and the fact that it all gets into the water. In fact, the three of us are sitting here and we have probably got plastic in our gut. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. So we really want to be at the forefront of this and making sure that our mass participation event is not having a negative effect on the planet. So following on from that... Are there any other races elsewhere that you look at for inspiration? You said you looked abroad. I mean, certainly I'm going to hand over to Kristen, who has run races in in the States. But certainly the States do seem to do a lot around not having plastic on the course. Yeah, well, it was interesting. So I joined the Royal Parks in March and I've taken part in a lot of half marathons myself in the States. And there are no plastic bottles on the course period so when i learned about you mentioned that earlier you said the brits <laughs> like to have a plastic bottle and that was a bit of a giveaway that maybe other well it, it was it was new to me and now that i've been here longer uh have experienced other sporting events went down to cheer on london marathon which was very cool a lot of races are using plastic bottles runners expect plastic bottles and it was a big hurdle for us to kind of look at overcoming. And so we pulled inspiration from that in the sense of this is feasible. We've just got to get people to come along with us. But also Percy talked a lot with Brighton Marathon and they were really supportive and kind of giving us what they have learned of doing it here in the UK and, you know, communicating with runners and sharing that information and making sure that they're still providing a really positive race experience. Yeah. Okay, well, that, Brighton is an interesting one. As we talked about just before this, they have the, the beach on, on the course, and you guys are in a, the beautiful parks of London, but it shouldn't be required to be within the settings that suffer from pollution. Why are other race organisers not doing this? Sometimes it may well be that various races are tied into various commercial deals or partnerships. That could be, you know, one issue. Sometimes it might be that they haven't made the steps that we are implementing. I am new to mass participation events and I was prepared to expect some kind of backlash because a lot of people don't like the idea of taking on water from a cup. But I think that, again, going back to our sort of communications, I think people really appreciated the fact that here we are we're running in these most beautiful green spaces. It seems to be completely at odds with the place that we're running in if we're just going to discard a ton of plastic on the course. I like the point about you coming in. Maybe if you don't know what the rules are, then it's easier to break them. Yeah, I think probably so. I'm like, well, why can't we do it? Exactly. Whereas other people who've run it for years and maybe grown up and then stepped into the race director role, seeing how it's done would never be bold enough to go for that. I don't know. We have still obviously got some learnings around it. One of the things is that because parts of the course are quite narrow, 
the provision of water in cups does take up more space. It's not as convenient as just grabbing a bottle. So there's a whole another piece that we have to do about that. We're very lucky here in the Royal Parks that we do have water sources available to us. And I'm very grateful to be working with my colleagues in the sort of park estates team on how is it that we can access this water and basically then provide it to runners in Bowser's. So, you know, again, there is more that we're doing. I am not going to let the charities off. So we've talked about race organisers. We've talked about what you're doing. What can charities do to improve what we provide on a race day? In general, what we would ask of charities, what we're trying to do as the Royal Park staff is really look at every aspect of the race from a sustainability lens. And, you know, what can we be improving on? And I think that's the same question that we would put forth to charities and that We want them to be certainly around water, you know, encouraging their runners to be bringing reusable bottles and to be reducing waste in that way. But are there other ways in terms of, you know, we've got these incredible cheer points and beautiful marquees and are there ways that we can be reducing kind of just needless waste through those kinds of activations? Yeah, certainly. I was talking about how I was prepping for this episode and I walked into our events cupboard and looked at the amount of plastic bottles that we take to, and I, I just hit with shame. And we mentioned before there were a couple of companies who can help me get around that. Definitely Life Water is one. Life are based in Brighton, in fact, and they do a lot around you can buy their water in a can, which is obviously much better for the the environment but on top of that they support water projects overseas so by making an investment by supporting a company like that then there is this virtuous circle of you're buying water from them they are then reinvesting that money in projects in places like africa and india all around good guys yeah yeah and then certainly we throw away a lot of stuff after events maybe we should take that with us and make sure that is getting recycled we're kind of living unfortunately in some ways in a society which is quite throwaway we also talked a bit about so single-use plastics i think you touched on just there certainly every vest cycling jersey technical t-shirt that we send out comes in a in a plastic bag and that does make it easier to pack them and sort them and but maybe we can look at getting rid of those and also canvas bags as well that was an interesting point so not things that are not single-use Well, and I think this is, too, something that gets into supplier conversations and just so shows how far this can extend in the sense of absolutely, you know, do these uh, race jerseys need to be wrapped in plastic when they're sent to you? You know, what levels, uh, what ways can we, like, actually reduce wastage and that? But, you know, we've had conversations. We we have exciting blue sky conversations of, you know, what more can we be doing? A race bib. We talked about... Could it be printed on the shirt? Could it be? Could there be a way that we're eliminating that piece? So I think that'd be a conversation that, you know, finding a supplier, a deliverer that would do something innovative around that. And if enough of us are doing this, if charity teams come together and say, yes, we are going to spend a little bit more money for the next few years in, in doing this, because we should, then they will reach a critical mass where mm. it reduces in price, right? Because it will be the better be done on mass yeah I, I think there are a couple of things there I mean certainly we're talking to our supply crew room who make our technical shirt I mean for a start our technical shirt is super high quality it's made from recycled polyester and bamboos so that has very high kind of ecological credentials 
But even with Crew Room, we're in discussions now about the issues you so rightly raise about the fact that often these race shirts come in a plastic bag. So we're, we're in that discussion already with them about how we can reduce that piece. And again, for this year, we made a step towards not having a race booklet, but we digitised our race booklet. I'm going to hand over to Kristen, who can give some interesting facts and figures on that and how well that was received. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's one of those exciting steps with a new team. We just kind of started looking at things saying, why are we printing this? Printing 16,000 copies of this digital booklet, so a physical booklet. So we decided to take it digital. And we're just looking in some metrics on it. And what was exciting, too, in this age of tech, of we were able to track people accessing that booklet, saw that we had 25,000 downloads of it. So people were using it. They were getting information. That's where there, a lot of that like sustainability and water communication was. And ultimately, I think people found it to be a really valuable resource in that form. So they didn't miss having a printed booklet. And we were able to reduce all of that extra waste. That's a really obvious one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, any key learnings from this year and things you will be implementing in the future? Well, we're going to be working with the sustainability manager here at the Royal Parks, looking at the event in in its entirety to see what else we can be doing. Obviously, there's innovations around generators using biofuels and all of that kind of stuff. So we do want to be really looking at that whole piece, basically. Okay, some really exciting stuff. I look forward to seeing what you do next year. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. There you go. Some really great work going on and some simple changes we can make to improve the sector. You're either on board with this or you switched over to Serial halfway through. I don't blame you. Third series is amazing. But just from my point of view, having recorded this episode, I've been looking at things differently. And I'm sure that's all our guests would ask. Talking to whom? Many thanks to Trin, Persephone and Kristen, and also to Viv and Lucy for the intros. Thanks to Patrick, Danielle, Jen, Susie, Nikki, Lucy, Jules, Amy, Tom, Felicity, Peter, Sally, Sarah, Kirkers, Lindsay and Lara for the socials. Next time, we're back in the pub, finally. I'm going drinking with the corporates. Better go and find my business socks. See you then. Before we go, quick quiz for you, Kenneth. Uh, Twitter? Do more good pod. Instagram. Do more good pod. Website. Do more good dot UK. Uh, reviews. Please leave them on iTunes and all other good podcast providers are available. MySpace. Uh, little K Dizzle. Still going strong. That goes in there. That goes every week. We don't need to do the others. That's great. Little K Dizzle.